I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Everyone experiences loss and grief. And most of us feel anxious or worried from time to time. Do we need medications? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Doctors have a lot of medications to choose from when it comes to treating anxiety or depression. But are these always the best options? What other tools do they have to help people cope with the challenges of everyday life? Our guest today describes some of the difficulties people can experience when trying to stop anti-anxiety agents. Are patients adequately warned about discontinuation syndrome before they start? Do doctors explain medication side effects clearly? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, are we medicating normal emotions? In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines... A common multivitamin may provide some protection against cognitive decline as we age. Findings from the Cosmos Mind study have just been published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia. The 2,200 volunteers in this part of the study took either cocoflavanols or placebo along with either a multivitamin or placebo. These individuals, all at least 65 years old, took cognitive tests at the beginning of the study and each of the next three years. Analysis of these data showed that the people taking multivitamins had slower cognitive decline than those on placebo. Volunteers with cardiovascular conditions seemed to benefit the most. No significant difference was apparent among those taking cocoflavanols. Researchers point to this as the first long-term randomized controlled trial of multivitamins and cocoflavanols for cognition They caution, however, that further studies are needed to confirm these findings. A research review published in the journal Open Biology suggests that aspirin may improve cancer survival. The authors analyzed data from epidemiologic studies, randomized trials, and basic biological research. They conclude that aspirin disrupts key steps in the proliferation of cancer cells. The drug also interferes with the development of blood vessels to feed tumor growth. There's also evidence that aspirin may reduce metastasis through its impact on blood platelets. Randomized control trials also reveal a benefit. In the Physician's Health Study, men who were taking aspirin were 30% less likely to die from prostate cancer than those taking placebo. Other clinical trials have produced inconsistent results, though. The majority do seem to suggest a reduction in mortality. Much of aspirin's anti-cancer benefit comes from observational studies. There are dozens of such epidemiological reports involving a wide variety of cancers. In general, people taking aspirin appear to be about 20% less likely to die from their cancers. Not all studies show benefit, however, and there's always the risk of bleeding in the digestive tract or the brain. The authors conclude that there's impressive harmony between the biological action of aspirin and cancer outcomes in various studies. Nevertheless, they call for more research to verify their findings. The safety of artificial sweeteners has been controversial for decades. 
Epidemiological research has revealed health hazards from sugar-sweetened beverages. As a result, many people have switched to sugar substitutes on the assumption that they'd be safer. NutriNet Santé, a cohort study of more than 100,000 French adults, has uncovered risks of artificial sweeteners such as aspartame, sucralose, and acesulfane potassium. When the volunteers entered the study, they answered detailed questionnaires about diet and physical activity, as well as demographic and health information. About 37% of the participants reported regular consumption of artificial sweeteners. Over the course of 10 years, people using sugar substitutes were slightly more likely to develop cardiovascular disease. In particular, aspartame users were about 18% more likely to have strokes, while those using sucralose or acesulfame potassium were 30-40% to more likely to develop coronary heart disease. According to the investigators, our results suggest no benefit from substituting artificial sweeteners for added sugar on cardiovascular disease outcomes. Do your medicines cost too much? How would you know? A new study in JAMA Internal Medicine compared the cost of human and veterinary formulations of the same drug. The differences were startling. On average, the drug cost for human medicine was over five times higher than the cost for the same drugs to treat a dog. In about 30% of the comparisons, the cost was more than 10 times higher for the human medications. Almost all of these drugs were available generically and included such familiar names as fluoxetine, sertraline, amlodipine, levofloxacin, and metformin. It would be easy to conclude from these data that people are paying more than necessary for common human medications. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Our lives are messy. We all experience ups and downs, loss and grief, joy and sorrow. When are medications helpful? And when do they cause more harm than good? To find out, we turn to Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, Program Director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke is the author of Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Were Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, and Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Anna Lemke. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Lemke, for decades, doctors thought that mental illness, kind of like a chemical imbalance in the brain. Uh, I got my start in a neuropharmacology laboratory uh, near Princeton, New Jersey, and, and I was hearing from my colleagues there, yeah, if we just tinker with the chemicals – whether it's depression or OCD or attention deficit disorder, bipolar disease, anxiety, schizophrenia. You know, if we just correct the chemical imbalance, we'll solve the problem. And therefore, everybody needs drugs, anti-anxiety drugs, antidepressants, stimulants, if they, if they have a problem. 
And if they prescribe the drugs, then doctors don't need to spend much time talking to patients. What's wrong with that picture? Oh, boy. So much is wrong with that picture. Um, First of all, the brain is still very much a black box, meaning that we really don't know how it works. We're, uh, we're really at the dawn of neuroscience and we have, you know, the beginnings of understandings of neural circuits, neurotransmitters, the ways in which circuits create our thoughts, feelings, and emotions, uh, the role of neurotransmitters in mo- modulating those circuits. And so it's a very exciting time on the one hand, but uh, metaphorically speaking, we're still sort of hitting this black box with a crude hammer and sort of seeing what happens. And that's essentially how we came up with these various psychotropic medications uh, to treat various mental health disorders um, by kind of trial and error. I mean, in all honesty, you know, the last 30 to 50 years have been one giant experiment on the human populace, uh, giving them drugs and seeing you know, what, what comes out the other end, um, which doesn't mean it's it's all bad, but I just don't think that the average consumer appreciates the extent to which it really is very much an experiment. How did you get involved, Dr. Lemke, with the documentary film Medicating Normal? What's the message of that movie? Well, I was contacted by the producers and writers of that movie to speak uh, on the topic of Medicating Normal. And uh, the, the real message behind that movie is uh, the growing concern that the producers and writers have that I also share uh, that we have taken sort of everyday challenges and turned them into a form of psychopathology. And in doing that, we're actually harming people. And as a psychiatrist who was educated in the decade of the brain, the 1990s, and was essentially taught that there's a pill for every problem. Um, I find myself some 25 years later uh, deeply questioning that approach. Well, I I do wonder why so many of your colleagues think that what I would describe as normal conditions, grief, anxiety, even sadness, require medication. There are lots of factors that go into that. Some of them are um, benign and well-intentioned, and others are as nefarious as you might imagine. On the benign and well-intentioned piece of it is that uh, psychiatrists really have, by and large, been trained to believe that all forms of, uh, let's say, emotional distress, um, deviant behavior, Frank psychopathology are the result of a um, problem with the chemical soup. And if we can just change up the chemical soup by uh, putting some chemicals in there that the person ingests, then we'll be able to, um, you know, solve uh, the psychological or psychiatric problem. Um, And and on the one hand, you know, the, the medicines can be very helpful. So I would never want to suggest that there's no utility um, with psychotropics. I'm I'm very grateful for these tools. And in some instances, I believe they are life-saving, but we are way over prescribing them. And, you know, beyond the sort of, I would say, sort of misinformation about them, 
um, the underestimation of their risks, the overestimation of their actual benefit and efficacy. Um, there's also a kind of innate satisfaction in things being clean and simple and be able being able to write a prescription and give it to a patient and feel like you got something done, uh, which is very different from the process of slow medicine that involves behavior change, uh, psychotherapy, um, you know, uh, um, the, the patient's own discovery and journey um, of what will work for them, which is a much longer, slower, more nebulous process. So I think that physicians who are kind of can-do checklist people, um, myself included, get a sense of satisfaction from uh, kind of writing that prescription. It, it has like a, its own innate little feeling of like, oh, cool, you know, I I just did something for this patient. And then you give it to the patient and they feel like, oh, wow, this doctor is, you know, giving me this potion and it's, you know, going to really help me. And then the patient goes away and they take the medicine and it might actually help them. And then there's this kind of uh, like uh, love at a distance, right? And a sense of gratitude that the patient feels toward the doctor. And then the doctor gets to uh, really have that uh, feeling of, of having been a healer and sort of that whole cyclical loop uh, makes prescribing pills very enticing for the average provider, not just the average psychiatrist. And then you add all to all of that, to that kind of psychological, interpersonal uh, power of the pills, you add the fact that um, our healthcare system and our reimbursement structure incentivizes prescribing pills over talking and educating, talking to and educating patients. Um, and, and you've got kind of like the perfect confluence of factors that will make psychiatrists want to prescribe pills, even when it doesn't really make much sense. Like, for example, you know, this idea that that grief now needs to be labeled as some kind of mental illness. I mean, that just seems sort of obviously absurd to me. Um, but but it's just the way that everything has drifted in the context of prescribing pills being, I, I don't like to say lucrative, because then a lot of people I've found um, misunderstand that to think that the doctor actually gets money for when they write a prescription. It doesn't work like that. Doctors get paid for the encounter, for the session. Most doctors today are salaried and work for large healthcare centers at a base salary, but they have billing targets. And those billing targets are, are essentially based on how many patients they see and what they do during that encounter. And a 10-minute medication management visit um, will get more reimbursement from third-party payers often than a 50-minute psychotherapy visit. So in other words, you have this, this whole system which sort of lauds, celebrates, and incentivizes prescribing pills. Now, I, I think we should probably clarify for the listeners, the message isn't that people should just stop taking their medications. But maybe you could address the idea of why people should be asking, what am I really medicating and are there changes I could make in my environment or my relationships? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. So the message is not that people should never take a psychotropic medication or that if they're taking psychotropic medications that they should stop taking them, not at all. Again, these medications can be life-saving tools. 
But unfortunately, the average patient consumer isn't sufficiently informed about the potential risks in many instances of these medications. And likewise, even mental health care providers, including psychiatrists, are not necessarily well informed about the risks of psychiatric medications, especially when taken long term. And some of the harms are also just, you know, more subtle harms. So not necessarily that you're going to get some kind of adverse physical reaction, but just the ways in which, for example, psychotropic medications like antidepressants can dampen the emotional amplitude uh, that people experience such that they're less likely or less able to experience deep emotions like awe or grief. Those are sort of this kind of the subtle, um, the subtle side effects. Or, or for example, many many psychiatrists are not aware of the addictive potential of medications that they prescribe, like benzodiazepines, including Xanax, or stimulants like Adderall and Ritalin. Or they're not sufficiently educated around just how high that risk of addiction can be. And furthermore, um, the one of as I see it, one of the major problems with prescribing or over-prescribing psychotropics is that we're really not adequately acknowledging the ways in which our environment impacts our mental health. And to identify the source of disease as inside the brain, especially if we're identifying it as exclusively inside the brain, is in many ways to ignore the ways in which our world is crazy-making. And there are many aspects of, of the modern world uh, that together conspire to make us all a little bit nutty. And maybe instead of taking pills to tolerate uh, our dysfunctional environments, what we should do is think about how to change our environment. You're listening to Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Stanford Addiction Medicine and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's one of the experts interviewed in the documentary, Medicating Normal, a film about mental health treatment gone awry. After the break, we discuss why some people have such trouble getting off drugs like benzodiazepines. What happens when they try to stop? What should patients be told about stopping such medicines? And where can they find information on tapering schedules? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Coco Via maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs 
providing transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, our topic is mental health and medication. Almost everyone experiences anxiety at some point. A big speech, an important test, or a serious diagnosis can all trigger worry. In some cases, such apprehension can become debilitating. When does nervousness require treatment? That's the question behind the documentary film Medicating Normal. Our guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, Program Director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's testified before various committees in the United States House of Representatives and Senate. Dr. Lemke is author of Drug Dealer M.D., How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop, and Dopamine Nation, Finding the Balance in the Age of Indulgence. She's one of the experts interviewed in the documentary Medicating Normal. Dr. Lemke, in uh, in the documentary, there are a number of people who are prescribed medications that they have a hard time getting off, and including a couple of people who take benzodiazepines. These are drugs uh, that are used to treat anxiety. Trying to stop a benzodiazepine can cause a lot of rebound anxiety. It doesn't mean the person is crazy. We had a a call from a listener to this radio show a long time ago, and she said, I am just having the worst time trying to stop my Xanax. And she said, I talked to my doctor about it, and he said, for me, Xanax is like insulin for a diabetic. You've got to have it because your body just needs it. And I'm thinking... Wow, that is really not my understanding of how an anti-anxiety agent should work. I don't think there's such a thing as a Xanax deficiency syndrome, is there? So let's start by reviewing the evidence on benzodiazepines for uh, disorders related to anxiety or insomnia. There is good evidence that this class of medications can alleviate those symptoms short term, meaning that the studies on average are about two weeks or less. The problem is that most of the time when doctors initiate these medications, because they work so well initially, patients don't want to stop them and doctors don't want to take them away. And so patients end up being on these medications for months to years. And that is very problematic because, first of all, there's no evidence to show that they work when taken long-term, and there's mounting evidence to show that they can be very harmful when taken long-term. And one of the biggest harms is something we call neuroadaptation, whereby the brain actually chameleon-like adjusts to the presence of that molecule by actually down-regulating or decreasing its own endogenous production of neurotransmitters like GABA, which is the neurotransmitter that is the calming neurotransmitter in the brain. So when when I hear about a patient who is finding it very difficult to get off of benzodiazepines, what I'm thinking is this person has had significant neuroadaptation. 
such that now they need that drug not to treat their anxiety, but just to treat their withdrawal from the last dose. And this is a really important and underappreciated concept because what it means is that when we take things like Xanax long-term for anxiety, it will stop working. And over time, we'll need more and more to get the same effect. And even then, it will stop working. And pretty soon, we'll even start having more anxiety than we did originally um, because the brain just simply adapts to that drug. So if I hear about a, a patient who says her doctor said that, uh, you know, she has a Xanax or benzo deficiency, that tells me that that's a doctor who really doesn't understand the neuroscience and the neuroadaptation that occurs in response to these kinds of molecules when taken long term. Now, Dr. Levinke, I fear sometimes that your colleagues, and, and that's not just psychiatrists, but all of the physicians and uh, maybe even PAs and nurse practitioners who prescribe psychotropic drugs are not that well educated in something called discontinuation syndrome. And that can happen with benzos, benzodiazepines. It can happen with antidepressants or even sometimes with antipsychotic drugs. And I just wonder why, why the profession, your profession, and the drug companies and the FDA ha haven't provided clinicians more guidance on how that process should unfold. And also, I'd love it if you could describe how there's individual variability. So some people can stop without a whole lot of problems in a couple of weeks, but for others, it might be months or longer. Okay. So first, I want to make a little comment about the language because that in itself is revealing. When we talk about people who are taking uh, illicit drugs, opioids, um, cocaine, uh, even alcohol, a legal drug, and they experience the effects of stopping that drug, we call that withdrawal. And most people have some inkling of what that means. But when we refer to that phenomenon with uh, medications or psychotropics that doctors prescribe, we call it a discontinuation syndrome, which in and of itself is interesting. And it's, it's basically a way to make what I think is a specious distinction between what's happening in the brain with illicit drug cessation and what's happening in the brain when we try to stop psychotropic medications, because both of them, uh, both of those phenomena are a result of uh, uh, neuroadaptation uh, and the response to neuroadaptation when the drug is stopped or decreased. Um, but essentially, you know, um, I mean, <laughs> you know, if you're asking why it is that psychiatrists and other doctors are, are not better informed about the discontinuation syndrome that people can have from all kinds of different psychotropic medications. Uh, it's because the medical education around these issues continues to be very poor. Um, when I was in medical school, we got maybe one hour in my entire medical school training uh, on this topic, and it certainly was not focused on discontinuation uh, from uh, prescribed drugs. It was uh, about withdrawal from illicit drugs. Um, so we, we really have a long way to go in terms of changing medical education and better informing doctors about the habit-forming potential or addictive potential, if you will, of these types of medications and also 
uh, about the harms that can come when people become physiologically dependent and then struggle to get off. I will say that this, there's enormous inter-individual variability on this point. Um, some people who have been on medications like antidepressants or mood stabilizers or benzodiazepines for decades can easily get off of them within a month or less, whereas other individuals who have been on these medications for much shorter periods of time uh, really, really struggle to get off of these medications and need to taper very slowly over a long period of time. We don't understand why there are those differences. Uh, there's not a lot of overlap with uh, history of addiction or risk of addiction when we look at those differences. So for example, you can have a person who um, is very addicted to opioids who can actually get off opioids pretty easily. You know, you can have a person who has no history of addiction at all, gets put on a benzodiazepine and needs two or more years to get off of that benzodiazepine. So we don't really understand what this phenomenon is. I had a friend who was a pharmacologist. He, um, he was also my squash partner, very good shape. Uh, but he, he went through some hard times and he was put on an antidepressant called duloxetine. I believe the brand name is Cymbalta. And boy, did he have trouble getting off it. And uh, finally, I suggested, you know, maybe, maybe you have to take one little bead because these are capsules that have lots of little beads inside them. Just remove one bead a day. And it might take six months. It might take a little longer. And he said, wow. Let me try it. And sure enough, that worked. And it took a long time. It took about a year and a half, but it did work. Now, Dr. Lemke, I'm wondering what should patients be told, maybe even before they start taking such a prescription, about stopping? Um, you know, what I say to patients, well, first of all, every patient deserves to have informed consent prior to being put on one of these medications. And that means that the doctor has to him or herself be well informed about the risks and benefits of the medication as well as alternative therapies and share that information with the patient. What I tend to say in broad brushstrokes is, uh, number one, you know, we really don't fully understand how these medications work. Uh, they're FDA approved for this indication but what that essentially means is that in clinical trials, they worked a little bit better than placebo. Here are the risks associated with these medications, the known risks. Here are the potential benefits. Here's the time frame in which uh, you can expect to see these potential benefits and these potential risks. But really, any physical or psychological experience you have after starting this medication we have to assume may be caused by this medication. And likewise, if and when we try to get off of the medication, any kinds of physical or psychological effects that you have, we have to assume or at least investigate the possibility that it's related to tapering the medication. The other really important piece that I say is that there are some individuals for whom, for reasons we do not understand, it is very difficult to get off of these medications once we have started them. The majority of people are able to get off with a average speed taper over the course of a number of months, but some people find that they really struggle to get off, which is why it's important that 
we not use especially dependence-forming medications like benzodiazepines for long periods of time. Um, and if you're in that you know, subgroup of individuals who struggles to get off of a benzodiazepine, I can tell you that I have had patients who have taken years to get off and we've had to go very, very slowly and they've needed a lot of support to do it. So those are kinds of the the kinds of discussions. You know, I probably haven't included everything that I would say. It sort of would depend on that specific medication. But I think the key here is for physicians to come to these medications with an enormous amount of humility and to express that humility to patients along the lines of saying, you know, we don't really know why these work. Like we kind of think we have an idea around the mechanism, but we're not really sure. And, you know, we can try it and see what happens and maybe it will help you. But, you know, here are the potential risks, including some life-threatening risks or irreversible consequences. And at the end of the day, only you can decide if it's worth it to you to take that risk. Dr. Lemke, I like to believe that um, that your colleagues, uh, psychiatrists, and maybe even internists and family practice physicians who are prescribing, let's say, antidepressants for weeks or even months will inform patients that, you know, there could be whatever we want to call it, withdrawal or discontinuation syndrome, and it may have to be done very slowly if you experience any kind of um, rebound side effects. But some of the SSRI type antidepressants are now being prescribed for pain. For example, fibromyalgia, or perhaps in some cases, even arthritis pain. And I worry that the doctors who are prescribing these drugs for pain are not thinking about them as drugs that affect the brain. Is there any is there any place that patients or doctors can go to kind of find out the various strategies for a very gradual or tapering to avoid withdrawal symptoms? Well, first, I would say I do think that people who are prescribing SSRIs and SNRIs for pain are aware that they affect the brain and that that's exactly why they're using them. We do have more information and knowledge now about pain often being in the brain and being actually a brain disorder uh, rather than being due necessarily to a nociceptive nociceptive injury, you know, in the tissue um, outside of the nervous system. But what what isn't happening is that in general, um, doctors, I believe, are not aware of and are not informing patients of the potential of a discontinuation syndrome. We're very good at getting patients on medications. We're not very good at thinking about how to get them off again. Um, and that's especially true when it comes to psychiatric medications, whether they're used for psychiatric disorders or whether they're used for some other indication. But you asked me something else. Sorry, there was something else. I think your main question I missed. Where can people go if if they haven't been given, you know, some detailed information about the process? How can they and or their their healthcare provider find out the best way? to get off such medications? Well, there are many grassroots organizations that have arisen in the past decade or so um, that are working to assemble 
uh, information based on lived experience of patients who have themselves experienced these discontinuation syndromes. And it's too many to list. There are many, many organizations now available online. Um, you know, the Benzodiazepine Alliance, Benzo Buddies. Um, people can look up the Ashton Manual. Heather Ashton uh, was a, a psychiatrist who gathered the tapering schedules of people trying to get off of benzodiazepines. In terms of um, difficulty getting off of psychotropics, I don't, I mean, um, sorry, the difficulty of getting off of antidepressants, I don't know of a specific single source that talks about that, but I'm, I am aware that there's a lot of chatter online on, you know, uh, social media outlets, Reddit, what have you, where people who are going through this can, you know, can share their experiences. So, so in other words, what we're looking at here is resources that are coming first from those individuals who themselves have experienced debilitating discontinuation syndromes rather than coming first from doctors and the medical community. You're listening to Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, Program Director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Her books include Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. Also, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. She's one of the experts interviewed in the documentary film, Medicating Normal. After the break, we'll talk about the tension between protecting patients and rewarding pharma's shareholders. How can we shift the balance, especially when it comes to drug ads on TV? We'll also talk with a person who's had serious difficulties with a prescription benzodiazepine called Xanax or Alprazolam. How long was she on that drug before she started noticing side effects? What advice does she have for others who are having trouble discontinuing their benzodiazepine? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies, demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code People's 15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia 
offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia Herbs, G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Today, we're talking about medications commonly prescribed to treat emotions like anxiety or sadness. Are powerful psychiatric drugs like alprazolam being overprescribed? What are the consequences? Our guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, Program Director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke is the author of Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. She's one of the experts who appears in the documentary film Medicating Normal. Dr. Lemke, we uh, recently had an opportunity to interview Dr. John Abramson, and he he talked about the pharmaceutical industry as having as its primary goal rewarding shareholders. And in the documentary, uh, Medicating Normal, you were quoted as saying, the pharmaceutical industry wants to diseaseify every single experience because they want to sell their pills to treat it. How do we begin to kind of change that equation, both when it comes to medical education, but also to patients who who watch television and see commercials that make it seem like, oh, we've got we've got a pill for it, whatever it may be. Well, we need much more clear blue sky between the pharmaceutical industry and medical education. Right now, they're essentially um, joined at the hip in many different ways. Uh, industry supports research. Industry industry supports educational opportunities. Many people say, well, we, you wouldn't be able to have the research without the industry support. But I, I don't believe that. I, I believe that there have to be ways that we can create more independence between the industry and medical science and medical education, because otherwise, you know, the, the influence will will persist and the bias will persist. And the, the data and, and the science around this are overwhelming that if uh, the ph- pharmaceutical company either sponsors a study or um, pays as a consultant one of the authors of the study, uh, that study is much more likely to be biased positively toward uh, that medication or that product. Um, likewise, you know, direct to doctor, direct to pharmacist, and direct to consumer advertising works very well. If it didn't work, the pharmaceutical industry wouldn't spend the millions of dollars that it spends uh, on uh, sales reps, on uh, advertisements, uh, you name it. it. It's very, very effective. So I do think that um, we could completely rethink uh, the ways in which we allow the uh, the pharmaceutical industry to advertise their drugs uh, to prescribers, dispensers, and consumers. And I think we especially need to do this when it comes to psychiatric medications and psychotropic drugs, especially potentially addictive drugs, because potentially addictive drugs sell themselves. Dr. Lemke, we've been focusing primarily on drugs like benzodiazepines, you know, 
the old familiar brand names like Librium and Valium and, and then, of course, Xanax. And we've talked a bit about SSRI-type antidepressants, of course, Prozac being uh, the first one. But we keep reading that stimulants are becoming more and more popular, and not just with uh, adolescents who have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, but for a lot of kids in college and now quite a few adults. And those prescriptions have been going up and up and up. Uh, of course, the the brand names that people may be familiar with are, are drugs like Ritalin and Concerta, uh, the generic name being methylphenidate. But there are a whole bunch of stimulants. And I'm just wondering about your thoughts with regard to such drugs. We know that many people do extremely well. They're able to focus but others have some trouble getting off them. Well, yes. I mean, I'm I'm very concerned about the way that we prescribe stimulants today to ever younger age cohorts, including children as young as two years of age. I mean, I'm concerned on so many levels. Um, from a molecular perspective, stimulants are identical to street methamphetamine, um, and so there's an enormous potential for addiction there. Oftentimes, psychiatrists who prescribe stimulants, they will tell you they've never seen a patient get addicted to stimulants. Well, that's because they aren't aware of the patient going around potentially to multiple doctors, or they're not aware because the patient stopped seeing them when they got addicted. Um, and so we have this kind of skewed view of just our one patient encounter without having, you know, the larger perspective. Uh, as an addiction medicine doctor, you know, I treat patients who get addicted to the stimulants in many instances that started with a doctor's prescription and and were continued with a doctor's prescription. So I know that patients uh, get addicted to prescription stimulants and that's a huge concern. But even separate from addiction, I really worry about what we're saying to people who have different brains. So there are all kinds of intelligence. And people out there who have these unique brains that are prone to drift and dream um, are people that need maybe a different kind of school environment or a different kind of um, project-based learning or different kinds of support to um, allow their wonderful brains to express themselves in the world. It makes me very concerned that we're using uh, a potentially very addictive drug to make cookie-cutter brains and to make everybody kind of fit into you know, this one sort of mold that our culture has decided is necessary uh, to be successful today. One thing I've noticed is that when you actually get to learn how somebody else's thinking patterns work, we all have different brains. It's just that some of us are more different than others. Do you have any recommendations for how a community can support people with these different brains? Because they they can be very creative individuals. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, first of all, it, it really does begin at an early age with families and parenting. We have to give parents much more guidance about the importance of structuring family life. Uh, there is far 
too little structure in the average American family unless it's imposed from some external source because of their participation in some larger institution. And there's far too much choice and there's frankly far too much dopamine or hits of dopamine, uh, you know, in the world in general, uh, such that, uh, you know, a child exposed to all of those highly rewarding and reinforcing behaviors um, is going to be a very different child than a child who has to, you know, get outside and shovel snow and work on the farm or what, whatever, you know, whatever example you you want to come up with. So we need to give parents more guidance. And then we need to really be much more thoughtful about schools and early childhood education and really acknowledging, you know, people who learn differently, people who need to move more. And this isn't to say that people should, children in schools should just, like it should just be willy-nilly and they should be able to do whatever they want to do. To the contrary, we need more structure in schools, but also more diversity in terms of recognizing different types of learners. And then, you know, more broadly, we need a lot more education among college students who are actively using and trading uh, stimulants to get high, to study. Um, you know, the da- data show that uh, college students diagnosed with ADHD who take stimulants have poorer outcomes, poorer grades uh, than people uh, than college students with ADHD who do not take stimulants. So my my read of the you know of the data is that long term again stimulants don't really work very well. They can be very beneficial short term, like many of these drugs can, but when taken long term. Not only do they stop working in my experience, but now you've created a person who thinks that they're unable to be productive in any way unless they have their stimulants. And that's just a terrible shame to me. I see lots and lots of patients who've been taking stimulants for years who are terrified to get off of them because they're just, they they don't know how they would get anything done. And again, you could say, well, that's their underlying ADHD that you're treating. Well, is it really? Uh, or is it really that now their brain is adapted to the stimulant? They're going to go through a period of terrible withdrawal marked by significant depression. It's going to take them a long time to readapt. And now at age 25, they have to learn some study skills that they never learned at an earlier age. Well, on a less dramatic level, a lot of us have actually had the experience of neuroadapting to a stimulant. And if you drink coffee every day and you suddenly stop drinking coffee, you're going to suffer. Right. And that's, a you know, for, for people for whom coffee is stimulating, not everybody gets a stimulant response from coffee, but for people whom, for whom coffee is stimulating or nicotine is stimulating, those are all stimulants, potent stimulants. And yeah, if you stop them, you know, you'll, you'll go into withdrawal. Um, there's something, though, interesting and different about the phenomenon when a doctor gives you the pill, because now you've got, you know, all of the sort of medical science behind it. You've got that relationship with the doctor. That alone, you know, ha- enhances and creates a different narrative around why you're taking the pill than if you're, you know, using caffeine or, or using nicotine. Dr. Lemke, one of the things that um, disappoints me is that there just don't seem to be enough therapists these days. We we keep hearing from people, well, well, I was looking for a therapist. I, I wanted to go to therapy. It, I, I needed to talk to somebody, 
but I, I'm told that it'll be six months before somebody will have an opening. And so I wonder how you and your colleagues are dealing with what seems to be a shortage of therapists, whether they're social workers or or psychotherapists or psychiatrists, and um, you know how people can can deal with some of the emotions that we've already been talking about and avoid medicating normal through actual therapy if there aren't enough therapists to go around. We have a very serious workforce problem. We do not have enough mental health care providers, especially not enough psychotherapists and people who do talk therapy and non-pharmacologic interventions. Part of the problem is that we pay them far too little. Psychotherapy is really hard work. It's where much of the healing happens, but it's exhausting. You know, it's completely focusing on that individual for uh, 50 minutes to an hour in a very counterculture way that asks the therapist to be fully present, not distracted. And it's very emotional. You know, you have to have a real emotional connection with that person. It's hard work. And we don't pay our our therapists enough. Uh, You know, so in a typical medical setting, uh, they will get paid much less than the MD gets paid. I mean, this is just like dyed in the wool in our infrastructure. We value non-pharmacologic interventions less. We pay the individuals who provide those non-pharmacologic interventions less. And so what happens is that the demand is so high that many, if not most, psychotherapists can just go out and open their own private practice and fill their practice in a day and not have to deal with, you know, the overhead and the bureaucracy of working for a a large, uh, you know, healthcare uh, sort of conglomeration where they have to deal with insurance and the bureaucracy, you know, they can just ask for cash. And, and in, especially in wealthy areas, they, they will get it. There are, it's very, very hard to find a therapist who actually takes medical insurance. And I don't blame them because the amount of time they have to spend getting paid by third-party payers isn't worth it when there are plenty of people who are willing to pay cash. Dr. Lemke, I've been seeing commercials when um, when somebody has been taking an antidepressant and it doesn't work as well as expected. These commercials recommend adding another drug, in this case, maybe an antipsychotic medication. And so there's this whole new idea of, of what I'm going to call the cocktail the mixture of a benzodiazepine together with a stimulant uh, like Adderall or Ritalin or Concerta, or then maybe adding on top of that an SSRI or an antipsychotic. And pretty soon people are not taking just one psychotropic, but two, three, or four. And there are all kinds of risks of interactions. Y- your thoughts on this, I guess it's a kind of movement towards cocktail treatment of um, mental disorders or depression or other kinds of emotional problems? Well, I would say this movement has been alive and well for at least the past 25 years. I vividly remember uh, when I was in my psychiatry residency in the late 1990s, seeing patients admitted to the hospital on 14, 15, 25, 30 different psychiatric medications all at the same time. 
uh, the the nominal reason for this kind of polypharmacy is that number one, you can augment the effects of certain drugs by adding other drugs because they work by different mechanisms, or perhaps you're targeting one one symptom with one drug and another symptom with another drug, or perhaps by using multiple drugs, you can keep the doses lower and not get into the higher dose side effect range. I mean, this is all kind of, you know, the lore. But at the end of the day, there's clearly huge danger involved with this kind of polypharmacy, because at some point you don't know what's doing what. And also there are important dangerous drug-drug interactions. We do know that the risk of accidental overdose um, from uh, medications almost always involves polypharmacy. So the more drugs you're on, the more potentially lethal that combination, especially if it involves something like an opioid and a benzodiazepine uh, in combination. What I have advocated for is de-prescribing clinics. So I think inside of medicine, we actually need to carve out space where people can go to get help to get off of their multiple medications. And this applies not just to psychiatric patients on psychiatric medications, but also all kinds of patients who are taking all kinds of medicine. Maybe one doctor started one medicine and then another doctor started another medicine. And before you know it, you know, you're taking 15, 20 medications a day. I would not want to suggest that there are never instances where polypharmacy is uh, is the right thing. We, we have and we treat and we keep alive very, very sick people. And sometimes what keeps those people alive is a lot of different medications but the system conspires to adding medication upon medication upon medication without any real informed judgment about doing that. So I do think we need to actively and with intention talk about and think about deprescribing, who's going to do it, where it's going to happen, how we're going to reimburse it, and how we're going to support patients medically and psychologically through that process. Dr. Lemke, I'm wondering what other tools do you have as a psychiatrist in your toolbox that's above and beyond writing a prescription? And and how do you decide which tool is most appropriate for the patient in front of you? There are so many tools that we have to help people with emotional and mental disorders um, they take time. You know, they're eclectic. They're across many different disciplines, um, psychological interventions, uh, environmental interventions, uh, spiritual pathways. Um, and really, you know, the way to decide is is to build a relationship with the patient to, to get a sense of what makes um, meaning in their own lives, what they have resources for, what, what they're capable of. And then in small increments to really try to encourage them to reach for non-pharmacologic strategies for what ails them. Because when we think about how the brain changes, uh, and the brain basically changes through changing neural circuits over time, which takes time and which takes a repeated behaviors in order to make those circuits resilient and robust. So what I ask patients to do is to really think about, you know, they, they how they can on any given day 
change their habits, um, you know, change their eating, change their sleeping so they're getting enough sleep, um, get it, getting enough exercise, um, doing things that they might not feel like doing in the moment, but which, you know, in the long run will actually make them feel better. You know, there's this whole science of hormesis. Hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And it refers to the ways in which noxious or toxic stimuli can actually make us healthier. And I think that's gotten a little bit lost in modern mental health treatment, where we keep reaching for that thing to make ourselves more comfortable. We're really afraid of being in pain. And yet the science of hormesis applies to humans just as it applies to other living organisms. Um, There's good science showing that exercise, which is immediately toxic to cells, is good for us in the long run because when our body senses injury, it works to upregulate production of our own feel-good hormones and neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. In contrast, if we take a version of those feel-good neurotransmitters in the form of a pill, we're essentially telling our brain, oh, you can stop making that because I'm getting it from the outside and then we downregulate production. So I think the science of hormesis is a really powerful one, that doing things that are hard uh, is actually often healthy for us in the long run. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. You're welcome. You've been listening to Dr. Anna Lemke, Medical Director of Stanford Addiction Medicine, Program Director for the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship, and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke is the author of Drug Dealer, MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. She appears as an expert in the documentary film Medicating Normal. There's a link to it from our website. We turn now to Nicole Lamberson. She's a physician assistant who was prescribed alprazolam for work-related stress. Over the course of five years, she developed symptoms of benzodiazepine tolerance withdrawal. Nicole co-founded the Withdrawal Project and does marketing, distribution, and outreach for Medicating Normal, the film. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Nicole Lamberson. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here to talk about this topic today. Nicole, can you please tell us what led you to start down a path with Xanax, uh, benzodiazepine, also known as alprazolam? Yeah, sure. So I was um, in my early 20s and had just graduated from physician assistant school and started my first job. And I think in hindsight, looking back, it was just sort of you know, being young and having nerves about uh, starting this new career and just getting on my feet in that way. And I remember the day that I got prescribed the Xanax, I was working and told my boss um, that I was just not feeling well. And um, one of the doctors that I worked with actually at my first job was the one who prescribed it. He said, oh, you know, this just sounds like anxiety. Here is some Xanax and this will really help you. So that's that's what started me on Xanax. Did it help? I think initially it did because, you know, benzos do. They do help initially. They're very, especially Xanax, it's fast acting. And um, I think it did help squelch some of the anxiety that I was having, but that was really short-lived when I look back. 
How long were you on the drug before you started to notice adverse effects? Well, unfortunately, I didn't notice adverse effects until many years later. I think what happened was because the adverse effects were so slow to develop and sort of mimicked other things like basically Xanax and other benzodiazepines can cause worsening anxiety. So when you start out with a problem like work-related stress or anxiety and your anxiety starts to get worse, it's not so easy to understand that the drug is what's causing it. So I attributed a lot of the adverse effects to myself. I thought I was getting worse or something was wrong with me. And so it was many, many years before I really put the pieces together. What happened when you told the prescribing physician that things weren't going quite as well as you would have liked? Well, so when I started to get worsening anxiety, and I also had depression and feelings of um, being suicidal, it scared me enough that I went to see a psychiatrist. So I didn't really stay with the initial prescriber. I, I went to a psychiatrist and Unfortunately, it wasn't recognized as an adverse effect to benzodiazepines. And over the course of five years of seeing the psychiatrist, I was subjected to polypharmacy. So by the time I I figured out what was happening, I was on six psychiatric drugs. Two of them were benzodiazepines, and I was taking a Z drug, which is a sleeping pill very similar to benzodiazepines. I also was put on an antidepressant, a stimulant, and an antipsychotic as well. That's a lot of medication. Yes. So when there was a recognition that maybe some of these drugs were causing the problems that you were experiencing, who advised you, you know, how to stop taking the medication and what was that like? Well... I sort of figured everything out on my own. I mean, I was deteriorating in those five years to a point where it got to where I couldn't even really work anymore. I started developing agoraphobia, which if you read about benzodiazepines, people can develop agoraphobia on them because they heighten anxiety. I started having rashes all over my body, just all kinds of problems, gastrointestinal issues. And the reason I figured it out is because there was a journalist who wrote about his own benzodiazepine and psychiatric drug adverse effects in a magazine called Outside Magazine. And my dad happened to read the story and he gave it to me. And then when I read it, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what has been happening to me. Upon reading that, I sort of panicked and immediately I wanted off the drugs. Well, so what happened next when you finally said, okay, this isn't working for me. I can tell there's something really wrong. And you read the article and now you were determined to get off not just the benzodiazepines, but some of the other drugs as well. Yeah. So I didn't take the time to really research. I mean, I wasn't in a great place uh, myself. And so I just wanted off of the drugs. And I remember, you know, doing a little bit of research and there was some stuff on the internet about like, you can go and, you know, quickly detox off the medications. And I do remember reading something about tapering too, but I asked 
like a friend of the family who was a psychologist or something. And he said, oh, you should, you know, just check yourself into this, this detox center. And I remember thinking at the time, like, how could this possibly be that everyone who's put on psychiatric medications for anxiety or depression, then they have to go to a detox center to get off of them? It felt weird to me, but I also desperately just wanted off of them so badly that I went and checked myself in to this center. And they quickly took me off of everything they deemed, quote unquote, addictive, which in hindsight, I think the the mistake that a lot of these places make is not understanding the difference between like a prescribed physical dependence that you get from taking something as directed by your doctor and addiction. And so it was treated like an addiction problem when what I really had was a physical dependence issue. What was the consequence? How did that feel? It was the worst suffering I've ever experienced in my entire life. I quickly, you know, developed intense, horrific withdrawal symptoms. I developed akathisia, which is a movement disorder that sometimes results in suicide because it's so devastating to the person experiencing it. Crippling, devastating anxiety that made the anxiety that I had on the benzodiazepines just look like child's play. I mean, I, I became extremely ill, bedridden, and non-functional. Wow. How are you doing now, Nicole? Well, I have been off of the drugs for about 10 years now, and I am still, unfortunately, experiencing a protracted withdrawal syndrome from them. It's improved from when I was first out of the detox center but it still persists and it still is very limiting as far as uh, my life and things that I can do. What advice do you have for anyone who might be prescribed a benzodiazepine like, well, we refer to the brand names Valium or Librium or in your case, Xanax. Uh, What questions should they be asking? Yeah. I mean, I guess I look back on this and I think, um, I wish I would have tried safer alternatives first. I mean, all the things that I had to do in withdrawal to cope, like yoga and walking and meditation and taking baths and talking to friends and all of those things. I mean, I had to employ those in order to to survive the withdrawal syndrome. So I wish I would have just done all of those things in the first place. And I would say research the medications first too. you know, read the pamphlets that come with them, the small print, look online and see if there's support groups for the drug that you're about to take and see what the people in the support groups are saying, you know, are they having withdrawal? Are they having a hard time? Are they having adverse effects? And then really, you know, weigh the potential risks and benefits. Some of these drugs are incredibly risky medications. And so you have to consider if I take them and I get all of these adverse things is the problem that I'm presenting with really worth, you know, risking taking this medication. I'd say too, you know, understand that your doctor or prescriber might not know everything there is to know about these medications to give you informed consent. And so you need to be your own best health advocate. And, um, you know, also we don't know who's going to be who ahead of, of, 
prescribing these things. So nobody can really tell you if you're going to have an adverse effect, if you're going to have severe withdrawal, that kind of thing. So know that going in. Nicole Lamberson, thank you so much for sharing your story on the People's Pharmacy today. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Nicole Lamberson, a physician assistant who has experienced benzodiazepine tolerance withdrawal and discontinuation syndrome. She co-founded the Withdrawal Project and does marketing, distribution, and outreach for Medicating Normal, the film. Lynn Siegel produced today's show. Al Wadarski engineered. Dave Graydon edits our interviews. B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with the People's Pharmacy. Today's show is number 1,315. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments to let us know what you think about today's interviews. You'll find a link to the documentary film Medicating Normal in the notes for today's show. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on the website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing, you will also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.